next hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So last time we uh, covered the concept of hours and how they were based on the position of the sun in the sky. And not according to a set timekeeping system like we have now, with their daytime hours being longer in the summer and shorter in the winter and the opposite being true for the nighttime hours. And I told you that this week we would be talking about um, the apocalyptic cosmic language of this section and why that was so important and what it would have communicated to the author's Roman-based audience. We have the uh, top slice of bread in this Markin sandwich with the centurion's declaration and the shocking, to them, mention of the women who stayed with him and were his followers all along, despite no one mentioning it until just now. We'll talk about why that is so significant, and in a few weeks, we will see what this mention is all leading to in the scandalous climax to this story. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical an ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six years, uh, seven years actually, worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series <sighs> dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids, and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. And we're now available on just about every major podcast platform. So that's fun. Uh, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. I'm going to review uh, briefly uh, the last 
few weeks and I will tell you it's a beautiful day out there this morning. It is 55 degrees outside but it's going to be like in the upper 90s later and I had the window open to get some cool air in here but the birds were so loud and, and given the subject matter I even though it's a beautiful sound I, I thought it would be distracting and inappropriate but uh you know, the birds sing to the Lord every morning here in my front yard. They, uh, they also angry about my cats in the front yard. So that might be one of the reasons they're squawking. All right. So review from the last few weeks. Uh, Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, was replaced as the main character of this narrative during the trial with Pontius Pilate and the procurator, um... Uh, which Tacitus calls Pilate at, or prefect, according to Josephus, and an inscription unearthed in 1961. But the gospel in the boss in the Gospel of Mark, he is called Hegemony. In reality, uh, there isn't much difference, so don't let the different terms confuse you. Uh, from there, we come across various groups who become the center of the action, all described as they, the soldiers, the ones probably wealthy women who tried to give him a narcotic in his wine. Um, the wealthy women of Jerusalem were said to have done this for the condemned as uh, a mitzvot, as a, uh, as a good deed. Uh, the pilgrims walking by on the roads from Bethlehem and Joppa, that's another group of theys, the chief priests and their scribes, and the two lestes, social revolutionaries who were crucified alongside him. The actions of the world are now completely in focus, and Yeshua has become nothing more than the direct object of their actions. He's become all but inanimate, you know, a background character. Too. According to Joan Taylor, an expert in this field, Yeshua was right outside the Geneth Gate. Outside the gates is claimed in Hebrews 13.12, and the chief priests were in attendance making sure that the pilgrims coming into the city on both roads were being inundated with the propaganda of why he deserved this, and the Judeans coming in from their homes were evidently eating it up because Yeshua's ministry was in Galilee, and he would not be well known in the South. Three, Yeshua's crucifixion happened at the third hour, which was the time uh, when the morning Tamid offering was slaughtered in the temple and the morning Shakarit prayers were going up. One of which, one of these prayers was a request for the offspring of David to be exalted and soon. Um, four, Yeshua has now suffered through five mockings by the chief priests and their scribes, by the centurions, by the festi festival pilgrims passing by, by the chief priests and scribes again, and by those crucified alongside him. Um, from top to bottom, socially, from Jew to Gentile, and even the criminals, Yeshua is symbolically denounced by the entire world Almost. Let's get to the text starting in verse 33 of Matthew 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, the sixth hour is what we would call noon. Um, 
in, you know, in our reckoning of time, but in reality would be anywhere from like 1130 in the morning to 130 in the afternoon. And on the Passover, it was going to be somewhere around 1230 PM. So if anyone says noon, they aren't really that far off. Daylight hours are about 65 minutes long in Israel during that time of year at Passover. So this was the time in the temple when the evening Tamid was brought out. Not sacrificed, but brought out. And the afternoon prayers began. Uh, the, t the afternoon Tamid offering was actually not slaughtered until the ninth hour. This is obviously very important to Mark's narrative in equating Yeshua not only to the Passover, the greater Passover, but to both Tamid offerings, um, which was the continual offering that burned all day and all night every day. Mark is very adeptly portraying Yeshua as the substance of both the daily and the festival offerings, but Unless we study the temple in depth through extra-biblical sources, uh, we're going to totally miss it. These hours are not to be found in the Torah um, or the minutiae of temple procedures um, in, you know, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. A, a very useful study on this that I went through years ago, and it took me just years of in-depth study is uh, JerusalemTempleStudy.com, and I have that linked in the transcript. And the teachers are my wonderful friends, Joseph Good and Edgar Ramos. It's so easy to get things wrong when we don't know the temple and the many times of sacrifices and types of sacrifices and um, also the time when they occurred. <laughs> and their accompanying drink and grain offerings. It's a very complex subject. No one can just read the scripture and get it because the ancient Near Eastern context of things like appeasement, which Yahweh doesn't get appeased, um, blood rituals, leaven, the concept of drawing near, that one does apply to Yahweh, and so many other things that are not in the text in any obvious way to our modern eyes. And some things just aren't there at all and have only become understood through archaeology. We can know how and why they did just about everything, but we can't learn it from the Bible. So we have the sixth hour when the afternoon Tamid was brought out for display and an unnatural darkness came over the whole land. And the darkness is very important. This was not a solar eclipse as the moon would have been on the wrong side of the earth at that point in time. You can have a lunar eclipse at the Passover, but not a solar eclipse, because that is the time of the month where the moon is almost entirely, or it's, it's, yeah, it's entirely or almost entirely full. It's simply astronomically impossible because the moon must pass between the earth and the sun for a solar eclipse, but that time of the month, it's not possible. So what is this darkness? You know, for that, we have to look at the Hebrew scriptures and cosmic symbol, symbology. At creation, the darkness was separated from the light and it was called good. And so on one level here, we have the beginning of a cosmic reset. It's like the plug was pulled out of the wall, okay? Which is not a good way to reset things, but sometimes we have no choice. 
Yeshua rested in a garden tomb, um, you know, representing the second and third days of creation where the land appeared and green things grew. And on the third day he rose, um, representing the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. Whether this really happened or Mark was simply expressing the event in terms of apocalyptic eschatology is unknown. If it didn't happen, it doesn't matter because like Matthew's account of the earthquake and the graves coming open, this communicated literary truths of what was happening in the world and to the world and behind the cosmic veil when Yeshua was crucified. And I know that might disturb some folks who want everything to be literal, but this was what made sense to them. And so we have to play by their rules. These people knew when and when not to expect eclipses. And if it went dark unexpectedly, there would have been panic, which wasn't even mentioned. But if Mark is expressing a rebooting of creation, this is exactly the kind of symbolism that he or anyone else in the ancient world would use. Darkness is often a cosmic event in the Bible, whether it be referring to the chaos before creation or referring to judgment uh, as the ninth plague against Egypt. Uh, this is Exodus 10, starting in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. We also see darkness in the story of Abraham when a great and horrifying darkness came over him in a supernaturally induced sleep. And I make mention of this because in Genesis 15, uh, this marks the uh, very cosmic event of the covenant of pieces, where Yahweh made a very specific kind of covenant with Abram in the ancient Near East. Two people or two groups would cut animals down the middle and place the halves on either side of an open area, and the participants would walk in between these animals and they would swear, may whoever breaks the word of words of this covenant suffer the same fate of this animal, these animals. But in this case, Abram was asleep and he watched as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch passed through the pieces as God promised Abraham and his descendants the land of Israel. Now, Yahweh would appear again to the children of Israel in the form of fire and smoke as they pass through the halves of the Yom Suf, sometimes, you know, popularly translated as Red Sea, and through the wilderness journeys. He still appeared to them in this form. Now, the presence of the in the form of fire and smoke was an ongoing reminder um, of Yahweh's promise to deliver them into the promised land. But, you know, you might ask, well, what the heck does this have to do with the crucifixion? So remember that Mark has been building up to the second and greater Exodus all this time. Isaiah's new Exodus led by Yahweh himself. The Israelites were perennially unfaithful to the covenant. But uh, only Yahweh passed through the covenant of the pieces in the form of the angel of the Lord, whom we know to be Yeshua. Yahweh is the only one who can redeem his people and deliver them from the Pharaoh of sin and death and into the promised land of the new creation. And so right before the death of the firstborn, um, the 10th plague on, on the very night of Passover, 
we see that motif of absolute darkness over the whole land. The original Passover is becoming the greater Passover. Um, and the first exodus is making way for the greater exodus. The daily Tamid is only a shadow of the eternal Tamid. And the salvation of the few is becoming the salvation of the world. And the temple of Jerusalem will be replaced with a worldwide temple of living stones. Yeshua's Passover is greater. His exodus is greater. His salvation is greater. His temple is greater. His sacrifice will be greater. Because remember, Yeshua's... Uh, all of this with, is the whole world, not just a people group. That's why it's greater. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the ninth hour, Yeshua breaks his silence in a loud voice that must have shocked the bystanders. In fact, the word cried here is the same word used to describe John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness. We are beginning and ending the story of Yeshua with a crying out, and that's not coincidental. As the afternoon Tamid was brought to the north of the altar and prepared for slaughter, Yeshua speaks in Aramaic, the first verse of Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which the author then translates because his audience is Roman, and even the Jews in the congregation would more likely speak Greek than Aramaic. For those who claim Aramaic primacy on all New Testament documents, it just doesn't make contextual sense, as so many of the writings were for Gentile believers throughout the empire. Um, does he say this as the darkness breaks? It doesn't say. Or do his words themselves break the darkness? You know, that seems more likely to me. He is, after all, the word of God through whom all that was created was created according to John. You know, his voice, therefore, separates light from darkness. Again, this is a cosmic event. The second uh, we've seen this week, first, the darkness falls over the whole land as it did in Egypt when Pharaoh was judged. And then the voice of Yeshua breaks the darkness and brings out the light again as at creation. And people say that Yeshua is quoting Psalm 22.1 in order to be symbolic, but he is the, in the midst of drinking the full cup of wrath. If he was in agony and torment in the garden, so much that he was barely functional. How is he better off now? Or how is he logically plotting out what he should say in order to make an aha point? I believe this is a genuine crying out. He cries out to God and not to Father, as he normally did. I don't think Yeshua planned this any more than the soldiers planned to fulfill Psalm 22, 16 through 18, or the crowd planned to fulfill 22, 6 through 8. This is prophecy being played out, not a contrived way, not in a contrived way, but instead as prophecy always plays out in fulfillment of something that never could have been predicted beforehand. Remember when we studied Isaiah, I told you that predictive prophecy isn't given to us so that we can know ahead of time what will happen. It is given to us so that after it comes to pass, we can say, aha, look at the glorious works of Yahweh. Can any other God give us the future before it happens? 
Predictive prophecy was for the glory of Yahweh and the witness of his power. No one could have ever predicted that Psalm 22 would play out like it did. And the most heartbreaking thing of all is that Yeshua receives no answer whatsoever. All of those things he said about being handed over, uh, paradidomi, the Septuagint word uh, for God handing his people over to, usually to the Gentiles for for discipline and judgment have come to pass. Verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Now what we don't know here is if they are serious or mocking him. You know, later rabbinic legends have Elijah coming to earth disguised as an angel and saving people, um, you know, most notably renowned teachers in peril. Were these legends in circulation at this time? No way of really knowing, or were they hypothesizing about uh, the words of the prophet in Malachi 5, starting in verse 5? Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. After all, if the sky had gone dark for three hours... And Yeshua had worked many amazing miracles. And even if they wanted to at this point, you know, they can't get him down from the cross because the Romans would kill, or worse, anyone who tried. And yes, there are worse things than death. Crucifixion is worse than death. Um, this has gone past the point of no return. No one can stop this except God at this point. Or his agent, Elijah, who would call down fire and kill every Roman in the city. Um, of course, we know that it, that Elijah had already come. Despite the claims of 12 people who have sent me friend requests on social media claiming that they are Elijah. Um, but um, as Yeshua told the 12 in chapter 9, starting in verse 11, and they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he shall suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. So not only have the crowds missed the Messiah, they've also missed the forerunner. Um, you know, ironically, the bulk of Judaism is still waiting for both Messiah and Elijah. And I'm certain that Paul and the other apostles never dreamed it would still be this way after so long. But, you know, it's changing all the time. And a great number of um, Jews are coming to faith in Yeshua as their Messiah. Uh, verse 36, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Uh, Psalm 69 is another messianic Psalm. The one where we see the phrase, you know, zeal for your house has consumed me. And verse 21 mentions sour wine. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. According to Plutarch and uh, Cato Major uh, 1.3, sour wine was the Gatorade of the ancient world. 
In fact, it was the common drink of soldiers because the water they had access to was really undrinkable on its own. You know it's bad when vinegar makes the water taste better. The word for reed is calamos, which is the same word used for whatever it was the soldiers were hitting him with. And remember that Yeshua would only have been about seven feet off the ground, and so the reed would not have had to be enormously uh, long to reach his mouth unless they were treating him as more of a celebrity and then they perhaps used a taller post. But I, I would think that would require planning beforehand. Oh, we're coming up against the break here, so we're going to have to leave it off here and I will be I will be back in a few minutes and we will talk about the rest of this section. Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. We are reaching the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, gosh, in about a month. <laughs> about four more episodes, I think. Maybe three. I can't remember. But um, this week is the... Uh, we're talking about the ninth hour and um, the Centurion's Declaration. And we were talking before the break about how when you were crucified, unless you were like a big mucky muck and they did a lot of preparing, really the cross, the top of the cross would only be seven foot off the ground. This, this is why the bodies had to be guarded because people, you know, had access to take them down if, um, if they wanted to. And, um, but having them down low like that, they could be horrifyingly harassed by local animals and there are a lot of wild animals in um, ancient Israel and um, even now in the wilderness so you know you go get dogs and uh, whatever they have there I can't remember right now so but the paintings um, really would have us believe that Yeshua was much higher than the other two and that could be done with a big mucky muck, but they didn't have the time to prepare something like that. So I'm doubting it. Um, from what Mark says, you know, we're really not privy to any of that information. So, you know, and um, so back to the sour wine. The sour wine would presumably not be an act of mercy, but a way of energizing Yeshua in order to give Elijah more time to show up if they were serious or as another form of mocking. But of course, you know, John the Baptist was dead as well and would not be showing up. Verse 37, and uh, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, this would have been shocking to the Roman soldiers who had seen crucifixions all their lives. As children, they would have passed by um, crucified bodies from time to time, and it was appallingly normal. The victims would slowly suffocate or fade away from blood loss and dehydration. But this is not what happened to Yeshua. Six hours on the cross, and before that, a brutal scourging over every surface of his body. It uh, it was roughly 4.30 in the afternoon, uh, by our reckoning. And he had not eaten or drank anything 
since at least midnight, and he hadn't slept in at least 32 hours. The word for loud cry is the same as loud voice back in uh, verse 34. You know, how can it be possible for a man who was about to breathe his last that he could manage to cry out loudly and coherently, not once, but twice? This death was both unexpected and, and violent and preceded by a show of strength and power. This was not a defeated man. It was as though, you know, I mean, yeah, he, he died, but he wasn't defeated. They didn't get to watch him slowly linger and waste away. This will be important when we come to verse 39 and is often missed. Verse 38, and the te curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the Talmud does record some things that happened 40 years before the destruction of the temple, but this was not one of them. Now, there are a number of possible reasons for this, but let's look at what they admit did happen. The sages taught during the tenure of Shimon Hatzadik, the lot for God always rose in the high priest's right hand. After his death, it occurred only occasionally, but during the 40 years prior to the destruction of the second temple, the lot for God did not arise in the high priest's right hand at all. Remember, that's the honored hand, okay? So two, the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat that was sent to Azazel, so this is the, um, this is the scapegoat on Yom Kippur. Uh, the crimson wool did not turn white, uh, which means they weren't, God didn't accept their Yom Kippur fast and, and very bad. And the westernmost lamp of the candelabrum did not burn continually. That's almost, that's always a pro, that's also a problem. And, um, the, the doors of the sanctuary opened by themselves as a sign that it would soon be opened by enemies. Until Rabban Yohan ben Zakkai scolded them. He said to the sanctuary, 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 why do you frighten yourself with these signs? I know about you, that you will ultimately be destroyed. And, <clears throat> and Zechariah, son of Edo, has already prophesied concerning you. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Zechariah 11.1. 1. Lebanon being an appellation for the temple. And this is Yoma 39b, and that's the translation from safaria.org. So, what did happen? Well, one possibility, the curtain might not have actually torn. And, you know, besides that, we don't even know if this is referring to the inner or the outer curtain. This might be more cosmic language, as with the darkness falling, but we didn't see everyone going into a total panic. And it would communicate that the barrier between heaven and earth was eradicated and replaced with Yeshua, who is our mediator and not a separating force. Um, not to be confused, of course, with the actual wall of separation around the temple complex, which kept the Gentiles at a distance from the Azara which was the 500 by 500 amot, and that's uh, the royal cubit, which was quite larger than the standard 18-inch cubit. Um, but that was the raised platform on which Solomon's temple, uh, palace, and the... Uh, what is it? Oh, goodness sakes, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, the, um, the Hall of the Forest of Lebanon, I think. Um, 
were, uh, you know, to be built. Uh, to the audience who were uh, very familiar uh, with the concept of holy space and Jew or Gentile made no difference in this understanding. And who would understand that the curtain, whichever one it was, was in place to both protect the presence of God from defilement and the people from encroaching on sacred space and dying. The curtain itself was incredibly thick, woven on a special loom, and I believe it was as thick as the width of a man's hand. Been a while since I've studied that out. Obviously impossible for any person or a group of people to tear it, you know, or even a team of oxen, I would think. This would have been an act of God, but when we look at this as a cosmic act, it's as though the fabric of reality has been torn, and I wish I could remember which scholar said that, because it's really epic. I don't take great notes sometimes. Anyway, Yeshua shouts in a shocking show of strength, and the curtain in the temple tears in two, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. And these, this, this curtain was really, I think it was 30 feet tall. Gosh, it's been a long time. So anyway, now something I never noticed until studying the commentaries was that, you know, like the covenant of pieces and like the parting of the Red Sea and the division of light and darkness, we have another separation text here. There are things in this world that should and should not be divided. Things that were meant to be divided and things that were meant to be together. God's creational intent, how things were in the beginning, shows a separation between light and darkness, land and sea, the heavens above and the earth beneath. These are functional and needful separations. Then we have things that should never have been separated. God from humanity in the garden. Men and women from each other when their mutuality became fractured in the aftermath of sin. And God's people from each other. But our rebellion separated us from God and also fractured the equality men and women shared in the garden. And our stupid pride separates us from one another. So, you know, for so many ridiculous reasons now. Now, case in point. Did you know that the early church... Um, was the Western Church, the Eastern Church, and the African Church. Africa had an amazingly vibrant church full of great thinkers like Augustine, Anathesius, um, and, and many others, but, um, because of differing cultural, um, outlooks, they saw certain things differently and divided. As a result of that, when Islam rose up, in uh, the 7th century, the African church was left abandoned and it was destroyed and overrun by Islam. Um, as a result of that, you know, you know, it's crime, okay? What a different world it would have been if they were all just content to be united in Christ and him crucified and allowed certain things to slide. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. Could Yeshua or the centurion see the curtain? Could anyone in the temple see him? No. The temple faced toward the east and was surrounded by very high walls, and although one could look down into it from the Mount of Olives, that wouldn't have been a logical site for a crucifixion. Ernest Martin says otherwise, but he is a very widely known fraud. You know, 
within the archaeological community, but he is not within the archaeology. He's on the outside pretending. And those who actually uh, study the temple, you know, nobody takes him seriously. He claims conversations he supposedly had with people who are dead and can't verify it, and whose families say that the conversations just wouldn't have happened the way he says. Just, you know, no. And his City of David Temple would only work if the cubit was like six inches instead of like 21. And the temple was, you know, teeny weeny. His books are popular with people who have not studied the temple and the archaeology in depth. And with those who have never studied Josephus, who in wars really makes it clear that Martin's theories are impossible. Now... Matthew said he saw the earthquake and made his proclamation based on that. We're talking about the centurion. Mark says that he based his proclamation on how Yeshua breathed his last. Luke talked about Yeshua's loud proclamation before dying. None of the texts claim that the centurion saw the veil torn in two, despite Ernest Martin's uh, claims to the contrary. Yeshua was on the other side of the city in a place where people could pass by on roads without needing to come into the area where they could develop corpse impurity. And and that's another thing. Crucifying him in an orchard, you know, corpse impurity is especially the olive oil, okay? That's not good. Um So um if you haven't read Joan Taylor's excellent scholarship on this, it's in the last two transcripts. I have that linked. If Yeshua was facing the temple on the Mount of Olives and the centurion was facing Yeshua, then the centurion would not witness the tearing of the veil anyway. In fact, even if the centurion was facing the temple mount and was looking down and not doing his job, he would not see the veil at all if it was the inner veil and probably wouldn't be able to get a good look at all, you know, if it was the outer veil either. Once you got high enough to see the temple up on the Mount of Olives, you would absolutely marvel at its beauty, but what you would, you know, really be able to focus on and see would be very limited. But before we move on, let's remember our Mark and Sandwich here. The centurions were mark mocking him and calling him the king of the Jews back at the beginning, you know, um, of chapter 14. And then there was the actual crucifixion. And now that Yeshua is dead, this centurion is calling him the son of God, which is a very meaningful phrase to the Romans. So what happened in between that made Yeshua son of God in the eyes of the centurion and no longer an object of scorn? What happened in between, and that's why it's called a Mark and Sandwich, because, you know, you have two bookends of verses that need to be interpreted by all the verses that are between them. In this case, everything that Yeshua endured for our sake is what truly makes him king, the son of David, the son of God, the Messiah. But for the centurion to use this specific language is huge. Ever since the deification of uh, Julius Caesar post-mortem, meaning, you know, after his death, the reigning Caesar was dubbed Divi Filius on the coins of the empire, and Divi Filius means son of God, which is kind of ironic because the Caesars never made their own sons their heirs. 
they would adopt a nephew or something like that. And it was perfectly legal to do. And really probably a better idea than just doing the firstborn son thing, which can really go wrong. But for a centurion to say this would have been sedition, giving an imperial title to a crucified Jew. If anyone overheard him, he'd be up on the next cross if he wasn't a citizen yet. If he was a citizen, he'd die. And since it took 25 years for, you know, a soldier to earn citizenship, that's not likely. This marks a change of allegiance of sorts and is meant to foreshadow the salvation of the Gentiles as the first to acknowledge him wasn't just any Gentile, but one of his actual executioners. And given the gods of the pagan world, and especially those of the Romans, uh, this would have been a terrifying prospect. He would have believed in regional gods, and they just killed the son of one. That's the first unexpected plot twist. Uh, verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and Joseph and Salome. Here is the second unexpected plot twist. Remember how the author framed the scene as though the forces of the evil one, the powers and principalities have marshaled their forces against Yeshua, both Jew and Gentile. And that Yeshua is just this background character and the world has taken center stage in destroying them. And it has appeared that he is entirely on his own. His followers have abandoned him. His biological family is nowhere to be found. His childhood friends are absent even though all these groups are in town for the Passover. Everyone is there. They just aren't standing by him. Except except a group of women, among whom, in other words, not limited to, Mary from Magdala, Mary the mother of James, uh, it would have been Jacob and Joseph, uh, Joseph, and Salome. How come these women who have never been mentioned all this time are suddenly brought to the forefront only once Yeshua is dead? I mean, this is odd because... Mark hasn't mentioned women very often, you know, unlike Luke in his account, which, you know, who mentions them a lot. Why were they at a distance? Was it fear of the soldiers that they would be molested? Was it perhaps because Yeshua was stripped naked and they stayed far enough away for modesty's sake? If you remember in chapter 14 that Peter followed Yeshua from a distance as he was taken to the home of the high priest after having run away during the moment of crisis and would later deny him. All this despite proclaiming that he would die before abandoning Yeshua. Here we have the women who have been so quiet and unobtrusive this entire time, not calling attention to themselves or their works or demanding a seat at the table or high places in the kingdom, and they haven't abandoned him. They can't do anything except be there in solidarity as he suffers. And it would have been horrific to watch. But when we contrast the brash, arrogant, bragging and posturing of the Twelve, and especially Peter, you know, with these women who were certainly less able to protect themselves than strapping, muscular young fishermen, it's really very touching and profound. Also want you to notice that there are three of them named who remained faithful, who were with him when he came into his kingdom, contrasted with the quote-unquote 
big three, uh, James, John, and Peter, who assume that those faithful to the end and rewarded for it would be themselves. This is calculated, not coincidental. The fabric of reality has been torn and the least to become the greatest, the last to become first. This was not something that they would have added, you know, to, to lend credibility to the account. This was a man's world entirely. Women generally weren't even allowed to be educated, which caused big problems in places like Ephesus. Was Mary the mother of James and uh, Joseph also Jesus' mother? Perhaps. Those were the names of two of his brothers, along with uh, Jude, uh, a.k.a. Judas and uh, Simon. All very common names in the ancient world. Um, at the very least, uh, James and Joseph were known to the Roman church, or else there would be no point in naming them like this. It's the same thing as when Simon of Cyrene was pointed out to be the father of Rufus and Alexander. <coughs> Mary from Magdala, we don't know from this particular gospel. And in Luke, we just get the very brief mention that she had seven demons cast out of her. What we know of her in the other gospels is limited to her being the famous first witness in every account. Uh, Salome is not given any identifiers, and so she must have been well-known. No one would be named without being connected to someone else or somewhere else. No husband, sons, or place of origin mentioned, so it's likely that she was a woman who had her own household. Um, woman of means, but you know who? Who are these women? Uh, verse 41 when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Oh, wow. They're disciples. Not among the twelve, but they followed him and they also ministered to him. No, this does not mean they were servants. Yeshua allowed women to learn from him. And we see too many women mentioned as early leaders of the church to just assume that they were only cooking and cleaning. I mean, 20% of the leadership, the named people of the early church were women. We know from elsewhere that these were women of means who supported him financially with no husbands mentioned. They had been with him since Galilee and followed him and ministered to him there and had come up with a group of disciples to Jerusalem for the Passover. No way could an itinerant preacher and a former carpenter and a bunch of fishermen and other young men afford to do what they were doing without financial support. Perhaps they were even the wealthy women who offered Yeshua the myrrh-infused wine as a narcotic. But again, this was somewhat scandalous to have women unattached to husbands or sons gallivanting around Galilee with a bunch of men. The word here translated as ministered is the same word to use to describe the activity of the angels on behalf of Yeshua as he was being tempted in the wilderness. Oh. <clears throat> um, so, the son of David. You know, I want to bring this up for a minute. And and that's um that's really the end of, of this week's with the uh you know leaving with a bombshell that uh that there are all these women who have been following him all this time, but you know, no one it, Mark wasn't writing about them. I guess he was saving the uh big scandal to the last so he wouldn't lose his audience before 
yet. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, let's talk about the son of David. I want to bring up for a moment the difference between how women are talked about in the Gospels and treated by Yeshua. Um, you know, than they are in the counts of David. The women in the Gospels are followers, ministers, helpers, supporters, witnesses, and evangelists. Which is, you know, witness. They are never spoken poorly of, and they are never up to all that hierarchical nonsense of the Twelve. They never abandon him. They show up to care for the body. They were the first evangelist. Perhaps they will even assist Joseph of Arimathea when he claims the body. But David. <laughs> for David, women are there for his pleasure. For um, producing heirs. For alliances with other tribes and countries. Um... To leave behind to guard the palace while he is on the run. Um, to be peeped at and sexually assaulted and deprived of, you know, husband in the, in the case of Bathsheba. And, you know, the women who were left behind at the palace? Absalom had sex with all of them. Um, were they willing or did he just do this? You know, nothing is said. Um, the fabric of reality has absolutely indeed been torn, and the kingdom of heaven is here. Yeshua brings a whole new paradigm to the Davidic line. Um, you know, next week we will talk about whether or not Good Friday was actually on a Friday, because one of those little manufactured controversies that I have taught wrong in the past. See you next week. <laughs>